0: Optophobia, the fear of opening one's eyes. This podcast is dedicated to encouraging you, our listeners, to move beyond that fear, to solve riddles they don't want us to unriddle, to investigate supposedly ironclad truths, to unearth evidence buried for so long they believed it would stay buried. Season four. It's likely you've never heard of the most important movie of 1989. That's because in the end, Relentless was just another forgotten 1980s slasher film. But director William Lustig's original plan could have changed cinematic history forever. Lustig flavored his movie with enough subliminal messaging to spark mass murder by hundreds of wannabe serial killers sitting in the nation's theaters that summer? Why didn't it work? And why is Lustig still taking lunch meetings in Hollywood rather than rotting in jail? This season on Optophobia, we'll track down the distortions, the assumptions, the omissions. Are you bored by the lies? Open your eyes. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Sherman T. Potter. According to a 2017 study by the Center for Research on Flavor Safety at the University of West Bucharest, of the 83,000 chemically-defined flavoring substances used by food and beverage manufacturers in Europe and the U.S., 96% are used in some capacity by the Keebler Company. As an aside, six of those 83,000 flavors, synthetically derived benzophenone, ethyl acrylate, methyl eugenol, myrcene, polygon, and pyridine were recently delisted by the Food and Drug Administration after they were shown to cause cancer in laboratory animals. And it so happens that all six of those flavor agents go into making Meat Pops, the new line of lunch meat-flavored sodas from Blend Venom Solutions that is sponsoring our show this season. Anyway, our guest today has a frightening story about the world of snack-flavoring and its connection to Relentless. But before we talk to Rosemary, I want to welcome my co-host for this week, Lydia Coffee Mate. Hi, Lydia.
1: Hi, Sherman T. Potter. It's so good to hear from you.
0: How's it going? Did you make any great? food in the kitchen this week?
1: Oh my God. Thank you so much for asking. I made two really, really fun things this week. One being food related and the other one non-food related. Yeah.
0: Cause you started to craft, right?
1: Yes. My potpourri. Okay. So my friend down at the farmer's market that is open at those, remember I told you those strange times they're open like mid morning, mid afternoon and all night.
0: I do remember that. Yeah.
1: So they said that they think that my potpourri is a little bit marketable because it's called upcycling. So, what you do is because of that, you know, that the dumpster feature, recycling feature they have behind the post office, yeah. because I can go there and scavenge a little bit, those things that I take and I like basically rejuvenate on my own free time and free will, that's the that cost money. My energy costs money. And so, what they say is I can mark the price up a little bit and then. I, I can actually like make a profit on my potpourri.
0: Is that the labor cost because you put that much work into it?
1: Absolutely. I, I will be able to up the price. Because the thing is, is it's not costing me any money at all. Like the oils I have, they were actually gifted to me from my great aunt Teresa. She was very, very into spirits and energy. And she thought oils would, you know, summon or desummon spirits. So I basically have a whole closet full of oils, so that like that's no problem in itself. But what I'm able to do is add the little bit of the flavoring and spice it up a little bit, so it can be therefore sold as potpourri. Therefore, I can make myself and Christian a profit.
0: So, what have you figured? Have you done the Excel spreadsheet?
1: I don't have a lot of investors right now. Uh, you know, I think if Samson, Delbert, and Rick could invest, they would. For those who don't know, those are my guinea pigs, my babies, but they you know, don't have any money because they don't have any pockets.
0: Well, let's get to our guest. Uh, unfortunately, our guest that we, we had scheduled for this week, film critic and William Lustig champion, Billiam Hustig, was unable to make it today. When our producers called Billiam to do a routine pre-interview, he put on this kind of weird, fake, deep voice. And kept saying things like, who is this again? And why do you want to know that? And what is it you're actually accusing me? I mean him of, and these were answers to questions about what time he'd be available to do the show. And if he had a stable wifi connection. So we will try to get Billiam on the show another time when he calms down a little bit. We were very, very lucky. however, to set up an interview with an amazing guest joining us from her home in Catonsville, Maryland. Rosemary Carraway is here. Welcome to Optophobia, Rosemary.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what, you know, what you do for a living, what you, what you do in Catonsville?
2: Well, in Catonsville right now, I am enjoying retirement. I enjoy walking up and down. Uh, I like cake. I can recommend some cake places to you. There used to be a wonderful place in Ellicott City, which is just down the road from Catonsville, Maryland, that had a fantabulous apple carrot bran muffin, but that place no longer exists. It was destroyed in a flood. Um, But I guess basically what I'm getting into is my entire life has been dedicated to flavors. For decades, I was a flavor architect with the Keebler Company. Many of you have grown up with those flavors. Maybe you enjoyed fudge stripes or magic middles, but the thing that got me most excited and the thing that I'm most proud of are my savory contributions to the Keebler Company. Children of the 80s would note me as the person who created pizzerias, potato skins, and O'Boises.
0: This is kind of like having a celebrity on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Let me back up a, a second, Rosemary, and ask you, how did you find your way from Catonsville, Maryland into a job as a flavor architect?
1: That is honestly, Sherman T. Potter, my same
2: question. I'm so curious at how one would acquire such a position. Well, if you one were to take the most more traditional trick, you would call yourself a food chemist and you would be, you would go onto a biology chemistry track, but I was more self-taught. I grew up in Catonsville, Maryland, and my first job was at Friendlies. And what's very special about the Catonsville area is that there was a Friendlies on Frederick Road, but there was also a Friendlies within the Security Square Mall, not far from Catonsville, Maryland, and I happened to work in high school at the Friendlies in Security Square Mall, and if anybody is familiar with that regional uh, restaurant chain, that diner-style restaurant chain, it was very famous for its um, happy ending Sundays. You would come for food. You might come for a uh, a patty melt or a clam strip basket at the restaurant, but you're getting through your meal so that you can have Friendlies famous ice cream, and at that point, we would just have, um, we would had our 22 flavors, but uh, the company was not very good at marketing them. Today, we live in a world of hybrid flavors. People want to experience as much food as possible. KFC did it with the double down. You have a chicken sandwich, but you also have cheese, and you have bacon, and it's exciting. You have a chicken sandwich, which is a fried chicken, but it's also a sandwich. Things like that. We weren't doing that in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was a high school student. People don't want to listen to high school students. So they do listen to food and they do listen to receipts. So within the Friendly's location at Security Square Mall, I would experiment. People would get very excited about these things. Then I would go to the location on Frederick Road, as a regular restaurant patron and i would order the things that i was creating within the mall and it got very popular and then that's when my manager at the security square mall location got very excited and they finally decided to listen to me and the security square mall location became the most profitable in the country and i would dare say that that was uh, the reason for friendly's first merger in 1979 and within that i became quite famous within the restaurant industry. And when it was time for me to pick colleges, I did consider going to the university of Maryland and going on that chemistry track, but I was courted by the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And as a college intern, well, pre-college intern, my rocket just shot off from there.
1: Oh my God, Rosemary, you're an innovator. You took the things that were presented to you in your, in your docile life. And you spiced them up with flavor and love. And I tell you what, there is nothing more pure or beautiful than that rosemary hairway. You know, I've never been to a friendlies, but I'll tell you right now, anywhere that I can go to look forward to a happy ending, I'm there. <laughs> I'm there. Well, you know, that's what's
2: so beautiful and what's so sad about this, because um, all of our lives exist in a specific moment in time, and friendlies are disappearing. It's not the same company that it was in 1979 and locations are not the same as they are. Security Square Mall no longer exists as it did when I was a teenager. The location on Frederick Road is gone. It hurts to walk past it. It hurts because, you know, when someone dies, they're buried and they go away. But when a restaurant dies, it's often not knocked down. And so you see... The skeleton of this person you used to love.
1: Okay, I, I'm definitely picking up what you're what you're hitting at here. That's kind of like a little bit of the trauma that I feel when I see all that trash behind the post office. And it's like just there laying in the cold. And I go and I'm able to go and recycle it, you know? But the thing is, is if my baby was a restaurant, I can't just easily pick it up, throw some lemon oil and eucalyptus on it and call it new. I hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
0: I think one of the most amazing parts of the story that you just told, Rosemary, is that as a teenager, you had a strategy in mind to mix the ingredients at one of the friendlies. Hybrid. Yeah, exactly, Lydia, to hybridize. And then Undercover, in a way, go to the other friendlies and start ordering those exact... I mean, that is forward-thinking.
2: It's forward-thinking, but it was also just like pure love. Just pure love. I wasn't thinking about whether I would get uh, the embroidered friendlies jacket at the end of the year or an extra 75 cents an hour. I just knew this is delicious. This is delicious, and we're here to feed people. That's all I wanted to do.
1: My question, Rosemary Carway is so when you became a pre-college intern with Cabler, mm-hmm. and you were working on those savory, as you mentioned, flavors. Yes. So you were working more in the lab side of things for Cabler, for testing out
2: different flavors? The research and development end of it, creating new flavors, trying to think up things that we could do, because again, at that time, they were very... they were willing to try things. They had their cookies, but they also had Weedables. Hmm. The clubhouse crackers. They were willing to go into a savory direction. Their crackers at that time were buttery. So like butter is, for some people, it's like, oh, this is fulfilling like a, a carbohydrate type craving for me. It's sort of a gateway drug. And I saw that. I saw that there was an avenue to go further in that savory direction and oh they should have kept walking down the road that I paved for them but if you go to the Keebler website today they have a sweet section but there's no savory.
1: If it was going so well for a time why did that beautiful time have to end?
2: The products that I created we were um a victim of my own success. Oh. When I tell you how successful pizzerias oh, Boise's and Tato skins were. It's like, yes, why? Why, why, why did they get rid of them? But what happened to me? The way I was targeted because of that scared the company and people get very, very, very into foods, very into foods. Um, I don't know if you all know, but within the food industry world, We know what happened when McDonald's discontinued the fried apple pie. Oh, horrible, horrible tragedy. What happened to me was frightening. But to the executive who made that unfortunate decision to discontinue the fried apple pie. I mean, like his name's not spoken of. You you probably haven't heard of it because we don't want his family, his survivors, to go through what he went through. His survivors.
0: Oh my. Let's take a quick break and come back with rosemary caraway. We'll be right back. Hey Optophobes. During one of our brainstorming sessions at the polyps at Jonathan Winter's Elder Care community in Shalimar County, Florida, resident Stan Wojowitz mentioned that when he was a kid, his grandmother often made a traditional Polish Sunday dinner of kielbasa and diet root beer. Well, we were all pretty high, so we decided to boil up some kielbasa, liquefy it in a blender, then add some diet root beer. Wow, it was not good. So we added seven cups of sugar to each serving, and, as they say in the part of Poland that borders France, voila! Voila! Amazingly, Stan's grandmother died from the bite of a rhinoceros viper while being hunted by the CIA in Angola in the 1970s as she was organizing the country's independence movement from Portugal. So, in her honor, we added a splash of rhinoceros viper venom to Grandma Wojciechowicz's diet kielbasa root beer. Grab a six-pack for lunch today. Bland Venom Solutions. We take away your thirst using snakes. Okay, we are back with our guest this week, Rosemary Carraway. Rosemary, you were talking a little bit about some of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you today, that there is some trauma, I guess, associated with your time at the Keebler company. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that if, if you feel comfortable doing it.
2: Let's talk about the products first and give them the credit that they still have yet to receive on a company level from Keebler. Pizzerias. So many pizza-flavored snacks focus on cheese. True. Just cheese. They reduce pizzas to cheese. But what pizzerias did, pizzerias were able to incorporate it all three sides of the pizza pyramid. Cheese sauce crust. It is. It is. Pizzerias provided the yeastiness. Of a crust, that sweet savory of tomato sauce, and the umami of cheese. Chase. Oh, Boise's were.
0: And Rosemary, let me interrupt you really quickly. These are, when you're talking about the chemical compounds of the flavors behind these particular snacks, this is your work that you're talking about.
2: This is my work. This is my work. Oh, Boise's, they were oh, boisterous. Oh, boisterous, that was the tagline for them. They were they were a loud chip because they were so dense. It had the crispness of a potato chip, but it also had that sort of like denseness complexity of like a baked potato, like real heavy potato flavor. But it was also light. It was also light and as portable as your favorite song. It had air pockets. It was wonderful. And tato skins were the other side of that potato coin. Because they were potato skin. Oh, just the skin. Just the skin. They were made from actual potato skins. okay. I've gotten letters from some diehard fans who think that like, ooh, TGI Friday's potato skins are fulfilling that need for me today. But that's a pale imitation. The toastiness that we were able to achieve with potato skins has not been able to be replicated. No one's been able to do that.
0: What was your role in developing the the chemistry behind that or or did you combine natural flavoring with some chemicals how did how did that work as an architect
2: yes those flavors are hard to create and chemicals get a bad name but chemicals also do great things so yes i used chemicals chemicals were used to achieve these flavors and they hit the mouth the brain and the heart the process i developed was called Lustig, huh. wait, say again. The process I created was called
0: Lustig. Oh, gee, really? Yes. Whoa.
1: Yes, but no, William, just the Lustig, just the
2: Lustig.
0: So, uh, what did Lustig? What was that process?
2: Well, I signed a non-disclosure agreement, but what I can tell you, what it did was it coated the tongue in a sort of way to get all of those flavor receptors and. I'm not saying it was heroin at all, but I mean, the sort of feeling that heroin creates within you that I've heard and makes you want to achieve that sort of flavor experience again and again, that sort of framework influenced what we did. So are you
1: saying that the savory products that you were engineering the flavors for for Keebler were coated in? drug products? This is a safe space, Rosemary Caraway. I suppose in like a layman's, uh, in layman's terms, yes, yes, yes. Why ultimately is this process called lustig?
2: Because you lust after it. Oh. oh.
0: So this is just a total coincidence that- Oh
1: my God. That
0: the process is called lustig and the director of the relentless film is also named lustig.
1: Which is what the FBI explained to me. You said that you specifically were targeted. Is it because of how potent these flavors were? This process, this lustig process, is something that became so coveted by others that it was then too dangerous for Keebler to keep only to themselves. As I explained
2: before, I was very popular in the food world. Well, not popular. Let me let me own who I am and what I did. I was celebrated for my achievements. Justifiably. Yeah. 1990, 1991, 1992's products of the years. Oh, Boise's, pizzerias, Tater skins. I did that.
0: Three years in a row. That has not happened since.
2: And uh, I got Food Industry Press and magazines. I was briefly featured on the CBS Evening News. And I did give an interview and I talked about the lustic process, this revolutionary process in making these flavor compounds. And um, apparently a fan of Pizzeria's, Tata Skins, and... Boise's Saw this interview and blamed me when they were no longer available to him regionally.
0: Uh Aha. Your success was potentially the downfall of the reputation of Keebler?
2: The reputation was fine. It was just that this... This man got upset when the company just decided that we need to pull back from the savory area and started to remove the products regionally.
1: Okay, this person got upset. Then what did they do?
2: As they started to disappear from the... Mid-Central region in the United States. The flavors from Keebler. Yes, the products, the products. No longer ample on the shelves. Yes. He would reach out to the company and call our corporate customer support line and demand to find tell us where, tell me where I can find these. And when they were still within his region, was still within driving distances, he was satisfied with that. He started to get angrier as um the range that he had to travel to expanded and it got to the point where we no longer sold them in stores but we did send them to vending machines so he was able to find them in vending machines and as they started to disappear from vending machines he said all right I can't find my O'Boise's. I can't find my Tata Skins. I can't find my Pizzeria's anymore. I can find a Charleston Chew. And I'm going to kill you with this.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yes. Did this person, did did they get the number for your customer concern line in the phone book? In the phone book. Who are they? Who was this person targeting you and so mad and so relentless about not having these flavors?
2: I'd rather not say his name. I'll tell you what, he was known as the snack aisle strangler. That's how the news magazine A Current Affair referred to him.
1: No way. No way. That's Michael Day. That's Michael Day. Michael Day. Michael Day? Yes, Michael Day. He worked on the set. He was the grip key. He was the grip key. On Relentless, Michael Day was the grip key on the set of Relentless, and he he left the movie in quite a tizzy. Okay, he would try every day. Every we had a little snack bar out every day. Okay, it was had donuts, Chex Mix, maybe a little salami, and and he was just never satisfied. And then just one day we showed it was our last day of filming, and. He was only there for half the day. Second half of the day, you know, it was that celebrating, like we're all just like wrapping up the film. And of course, again, a spooky, weird environment, right? But he was just nowhere to be found. And we never saw him ever again until he was featured on the news several years later for being the snack-all strangler. I am so sorry that you got yourself caught up in this.
0: So, Rosemary, what, what was the physical manifestation of the threat or attempted violence against you.
2: Well, he broke into my house while I was sleeping and tried to choke me to death with a charleston chew. My god. I woke up as like he approached because my nose is very sensitive. I could smell it immediately. Huh. But there was a tussle, I screamed, neighbors heard, and the police came. It was very, 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 very traumatizing.
1: I will say the reason that Michael Day, the snack all strangler, became so famous is that he attempted to strangle but never did fully strangle. So you said you had a tussle. Mm-hmm. Did that tussle end up in strangling physically? Or emotionally strangling? Both.
0: Oh, God. Both. Can I ask a sort of strange question, Rosemary? Mm-hmm. What happened to the actual Charleston Chew that he used to try to strangle you?
2: I got a bit of it in my mouth, coughed it up. It was on the floor. It was taken away as police evidence. But uh, in the media reports of this, it was blown up. There was a lot of attention focused on um me, almost choking on a charleston chew and it became a joke on the tonight show and later on in a song you all have heard of the Dr. Dre and Eminem song, and Eminem has the line, I'm going to choke you to death with a Charleston chew. Yes. Do you know how that felt when that came out? That was inspired from your
1: story? Yes! And all you ever wanted to do was hybrid, harness, and share your passion for flavors. That's
0: all. That's all. Rosemary, unfortunately, we're about to be out of time, but I wondered if you might be able to tell us how this all ended up for you. I know you're retired now, but did you continue to architect flavors with
2: Keebler? I did leave Keebler. Keebler left me. They had um, ethical concerns about the lustig process, but fine. You don't want to do the lustig process anymore. We don't have to do the lustig process anymore, but I, I um, still continued my flavor building. For a while, I was responsible for many copycat recipes. So if you've ever made a, uh, or looked for a DIY, make your own Cinnabon recipe, I did that. I know how to do that. If you've ever made Big Mac sauce at home, Mm -hmm. I did that. If you've ever looked for a recipe for the Bloomin' Onion, the Bloomin' Onion. Thank you. Oh my God, there
1: is nothing like that Bloomin' Onion and that sauce. Oh,
0: so you became kind of a flavor entrepreneur in a way. You you struck out on your own.
2: I struck out on my own. But uh, it's more interesting to me to create flavors, to approximate a flavor and create a memory, create a sensation. Sure, you can have butter that's legally butter and has the correct ratios of cream and fat and whatnot. But why isn't it more interesting to have something that tastes exactly like butter? And reminds you of, ooh, a sunny day at your grandmother's house when she was kind of smoking a cigarette while she cooked.
1: I can't believe it's not butter while my grandma is cooking and smoking a cigarette simultaneously.
0: I think it's nice that we had a positive and charming way to end a show that really was kind of horrifying. Rosemary, your experience is troubling. Uh, And it's really nice to see that you were able to turn things around after your experience and create fake flavors for the whole world.
2: I'm trying. I'm just trying to make myself happy, other people happy. I will die a very happy woman if I can figure out vegan cheese, because that's just a tough nut to crack. That's just a tough nut to crack.
0: Well, we will have to leave it there for now. I want to thank our guest this week, Rosemary Carraway. Thank you, Rosemary, for telling your story.
2: Thank you for hearing it.
0: And my co-host, Lydia Coffey-Mattei. Thank you, Lydia, as always.
1: Of course, Sherman T. Potter. Thank you so much.
0: Please join us next week for our final episode of the season. I will be joined by my two co-hosts, Lydia and Jeffrey Dahmer, to discuss what we've learned from our guests this season about William Lustig's plans for mass murder via movie. Thanks for listening to Optophobia. I am Sherman T. Potter, and I'll leave you with this Play the banjo. Don't banjo the play. If you've got a connection to Relentless, we'd like to hear it. You can find us on our website, optophobia.org, or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at Optophobes. And please subscribe and rate the show if you like it. Thank you to Erica Johnson, who played Rosemary Carraway. Erica performs with Washington Improv Theatre House Ensemble Lena Dunham. Thank you to Erin Murray, who played Lydia Coffee Mattei. Erin performs with Madeline, the Washington Improv Theatre House Ensemble, and the Lodge. Follow her on Instagram, at@, at yearney B. Murray. Optophobia was produced by Tim Townsend. Music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Cover art by Claire Smalley. Additional website art by Nicole Bennett. Website by Chance Griffin. Thanks for listening. Until next week, keep them open.